All right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual for a Tuesday episode, here with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning, Bradley. It's, um, we're here at P&T Knitwear on the Lower East Side, as our uh, regular listeners know, but we like to remind you anyway. 180 Orchard Street. Um, the bookstore I was in this weekend, actually, I know you were too, uh, Bradley, because I saw you here. Um, and uh, it, was, uh, it was busy. It was nice. It was yeah, there were people here. And then Hugo and I were recording on Saturday. And we're never really here on the weekends, especially I think it's the first time we ever recorded on a Saturday here. And Orchard Street on Saturday, kind of early evening, is radically different than we're sitting here now at 8 a.m. on Monday morning. And there was like a fight right outside and like... It was packed, and people were trying to get into a club at 4.30, which I didn't really understand. 4.30 in the afternoon. The yeah. whole thing was strange, but um, but it was mildly entertaining. The fight was literally right in front of our window. It was, it, was, it was dramatic. And that came off of last week, where there was a shooting a few doors down, and the homicide investigation opened up while we were recording last Monday, and then when we finished recording, the cops came in and asked for our security footage, <laughs> which unfortunately didn't have, we gave it to them, but they didn't have anything. Oh, do we have security footage? What we have is the, I'm not sure if I should be saying this or not, but what we have is the front of the store, so we capture what's coming out the window, Okay. but clearly the yeah, that was down assailants the came from the north and left to the north, so they never crossed our window. Um, well, today we are not going to be talking about street crime in Manhattan. We are going to be talking about extremism in the world. I guess they're not really connected in any meaningful way. Well, actually, I have crime on my list. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. Um, but but the, the immediate, this is not actually what inspired the episode, but the immediate piece of news that it turns on a little bit is the Bolsonaro uh, vote in Brazil. He was expected to lose um, rather handily, and he is now in a runoff. And that has uh, certainly shifted expectations in, in Brazil in terms of the immediate term political future, but also um, feeds into this kind of larger global trend that you want to talk about. Yeah. I mean, look, this is just sort of one of, because keep in mind, in Italy, two weeks ago, you know, Maloney became the prime minister for Brothers of Italy, which is an extremist group. And we've just been seeing this all over the world. Uh, Netherlands, Sweden, Germany, Brexit, obviously, with the leading example, Trump, the super leading example, Philippines, uh, some signs in Australia. So we are in a world right now where extremism is very appealing to people. Um, By the way, it can also be extremism on the left, right? It doesn't have to just be extremism on the right. Um, I think it's sort of obvious as to why, because we live in a world that is incredibly hyperpolarized already, a world where everything good and bad is visible on the internet 24 seven. So everyone knows what they have and what they don't have. Um, And a world with a lot of fear and a lot of anger. And look, throughout history, demagogues have been successful at kind of winning support from from people and then using that to their own gain. So I don't know that it's radically new right now, but it is a trend that's absolutely sweeping the world. So what I want to talk about was less around sort of why this happens, because there's sort of endless books written about that already, and Mm -hmm. more like from a long-term perspective, like what would be policy solutions that if you implemented them might relieve the pressure for for people to go this way? So just to be clear to listeners, this is from a uh, sort of an individual standpoint, from a from an investor standpoint, from a strategist standpoint. How how are you like approaching? You know, it? kind of all, but it's, it's really from a public policy standpoint more than anything else. Like kind of, kind of concerned citizen, even yeah, though that's kind I, of a the lame listeners term. may remember. Like I think maybe a month ago, we did an episode where I kind of laid out seven big picture solutions for you know the world, and it, this is not unlike that. Okay, and that I think was actually a pretty popular episode. So ho- hopefully, this will be too. Um, so, um, yes, I have on my list here um, eight different ideas. Uh, some of them are things we've talked about in this podcast a lot. Um, some of them are 
new. Um, are they in any order? Or are they just? No, not really. So I'll, I'll start with the one that I think probably is the most important, which is, and, and I've talked about this a lot on this podcast, which is universal basic income. And, and what it really means by that, because there's lots of different ways to define it and to structure it and everything else. And rather than get lost in debating and the sort of the details of UBI versus, you know, some sort of other payment, government payment, subsidy, whatever it is, it's the point that we have uh, massive income inequality, and yet we also know that capitalism by far is the best economic system ever invented. It's the best economic system ever invented because it has lifted billions of people out of extreme poverty, reduced child mortality rates, infant mortality rates, you know, increased lifespan, taking people out of poverty, you know, literacy, every sort of metric, especially you know, in developing countries, um, people are doing a lot better than they were 50, 60 years ago because of capitalism. So clearly, you have a system that is a lot better than sort of other types of economies. So we know that you need to keep it, but this system that has worked very well in some ways um, also has some real flaws to it. And I think one of them is uh, wild economic inequity, where, where some people are very, very wealthy, um, some people are middle class, and a lot of people are poor. And I think that has become so much more, I don't know if it's become exacerbated by the internet, but it's become much more visible by the internet, right? So be before the internet, I think people might not have been quite of aware of what they didn't have and who had more than they do. But now that you have platforms like Instagram that are just designed to make people feel bad about themselves, um, it, it, it becomes much, much more extreme. And so I don't see a way, ultimately, if what you want to do is convince people to pick a centrist, moderate, reasonable path for their country and to not pick demagogues on the far right or the far left. And if you think about it, like take the 2016 primary here in the U.S., Trump and Sanders have the same message, which is you're getting screwed over and I'm going to get justice for you. Um, Sanders was saying that it was 1%. Trump was saying it's people with brown skin. But it was the same message at the end of the day. You know, they're both demagogues. They're both extremists. Um, so if you don't want people to be so vulnerable to a message of I'll get even for you, and by the way, they never do, right? They just use it to gain power for themselves. Um, th then you've got to find a way to make people both feel better and you've got to make their lives better, right? So I think the first thing is you want to keep capitalism, but you also want to reduce inequality, and there's got to be a wealth transfer, both in this country and probably in this world. Um, and, you know, you, you could do it through all kinds of taxes, and that's the traditional mechanism, but based on my experience in, in working in government, um, you know, 50 cents on the dollar will get frittered away and lost to bureaucracy, waste, corruption, fraud, whatever else. Um, whereas if, you know, a dollar from my pocket went to a dollar of someone else's pocket who, you know, is low income, they get a dollar, right? And yeah, well, some small percentage of people wasted on, you know, terrible things, sure. But I think the vast majority of people will use it to buy food for their families or pay their rent or pay the heating bills or get some savings or pay off debt or whatever it is. Um, and, and I think we really need to do that because you have, you know, I don't know, 70% of this country living in economic insecurity. Even if they make a decent living, they're worried about um, how to pay off their mortgage, how to pay off their student loans, how to pay for the rising cost of health care, um, the fact that their kids don't necessarily have better prospects than they did. And so if you can start to even it out and just reduce that anxiety because people feel like, A, they're being heard and taken care of, and B, there's more money in their pockets, um, that will go a long way. And if there is more money in their pockets, by the way, that spurs the economy, right? Because very wealthy people who will be the ones giving in UBI, you know, they spend a shit ton of money, but they also just put a lot away, right? Because there's a lot of money. If you give it to a, a low-income person, they're going to spend it, right? Because they're going to need to. 
And that what do you mean put it away? Don't they? I Save, mean, they put it in savings. They, they, well, they invest it, right? They, isn't, yeah. Isn't it, doesn't it provide equity for the growth of the economy? It, it, it does. That's, that's fair enough. But, you know, most of the equity for the growth of the economy comes from institutional sources, right? It comes from hedge funds. It comes from pension funds, things like that. And I guess in theory, maybe hedge funds would get less investment um, in a world of, um, of UBI. But I think the reality is the economic activity that you would spark in spending, consumer spending, would be far more significantly helpful than the commensurate loss. So let's of, of do the income. political math on this a little yeah. bit. What is the what would you identify as the biggest obstacle to this in terms of like which parts of the political landscape is this is this an a, an idea Republicans will ever get behind? No, they they never will. But but I don't know that most Democrats will either. Right? We are seeing experiments. Look, it's it's not really Republican versus Democrat. Mm -hmm. It's people who are wedded to the past versus people who are willing to consider new ideas. And usually, my experience it's about ninety ten. Right? So the ninety percent of the people in power. Um, just want to stay where they are. They don't want to risk losing power in any way. They don't have new ideas. They don't have any risk tolerance. And as a result, they just do things the same old way. Like we've seen this with mobile voting. 10% of election officials are interested in what we're doing and willing to give it a shot. 90% are terrified that you know something could go wrong and they would look bad. Uh, and you even think there's like a, some weird rule there that ten. That maybe, maybe we can come up with one. Yeah. The, 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 so the, the Tusk rule on. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to put your name first. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mobile voting inspired in particular, but um, so the so so 10%. I guess it's, it's sort of a side issue, but I'm curious about that breakdown. And does that, and that sort of you see that universally a little bit. Yeah. Little, I mean, I think look, depending on the issue, it may be a little more to one party or the other. Um, although for mobile voting, it's, it's really been both because there's people on the right who are innovative yet conservative, but they want to empower uh, deployed military. And there are people on the left who are innovative and liberal, but they want to empower people with disabilities. And so, you know, I think the same thing is going to be true with UBI. We've seen cities like Stockton, California have experiments. A lot of them have shown progress and results. Um, so are there some number of elected officials that would want to do it immediately, yes. Is there another subset that probably, if they had political cover, would also be willing to try? Yes. But the main enemy of basically this and everything I'm going to talk about is just uh, status quo. It's just, it's just it's inertia. It's people who are more concerned about their own grip on power than making anything better for anyone else. And as a result, nothing gets done, nothing changes, and the world just gets worse. Well, we should have Annie Lowry as a book on the subject, which I have not read, but I do know Annie a little bit, and okay. she is a great journalist. So we should have her on to discuss it. Yeah, so that'd that's, be great. So that's, that's number one. That's number one. So no, number two is sort of related, and I've said this before, but it's uh, reparations. So in the U.S., it would be reparations for slavery. Maybe even, uh, you know, we, we have Native American reservations, but they're incredibly poor, so maybe it's reparations for that too. Um, and other parts of the world as well, right? And, and it's partly economic, so it's some, of the, some of it's the same reason as, as universal basic income, which is groups, large groups of people have a lot less money than other groups of people. But part of it also is just you got to right the wrong. You know, so this is a weird analogy, but when I was the deputy governor in Illinois, uh, medical malpractice was like the big political issue of the time. And the Illinois legislature and the governor were all Democrats, all got plenty of money from the trial lawyers, all were sort of instinctively against it. And yet the doctors did such an amazing job organizing that we sort of had to ultimately consider it and then do something on it. But the thing that surprised me the most is the statistics that I was shown, assuming they were accurate, that a significant number of people, if they got an apology, a genuine apology from the doctor, 
dropped their lawsuit or didn't sue or settled far more easily. People just want to be heard and acknowledged and validated. I've been talking about dialectical behavior therapy on this podcast a lot. That's effectively what DBT is, right? It's, it's, it's validating people's feelings while still saying whatever it is you need to say. And so I just think that until we do that, you're never going to have a world where people feel safe and heard and respected. And as a result, there's always going to be tension and always going to be hostility. And as long as you have that undercurrent, it's always going to be right for extremists to exploit. Okay. That's number two. Number three. Internet. Uh, obviously, people are tired of hearing me say this, but <laughs> you, you got to make the internet less toxic, right? Uh, right now, the economic incentives for Facebook, Google, Twitter, you know, TikTok, every platform um, – is to have things be as toxic and negative as possible because they make their model based on advertising, based on clicks. We all know that negative posts drive far more clicks than positive posts. So as a result, if you're these companies and your only goal is to maximize profits for shareholders, um, then you're going to prioritize negative content over positive content. Um, right now, the reason they can do that is a law called Section 230 of the Telecommunications Decency Act passed in 1996 by Congress exempts uh, internet platforms from any liability for the content posted by users. It, it made sense at the time to help kind of spur the development of the internet itself. But now that the internet is just a cesspool that ultimately really is fueling extremism, right? Because it, it's showing people sort of how what they don't have and how much better everyone's lives are, even though so much of that is fictitious, um, that that's what drives a lot of these feelings of, of dissatisfaction and unhappiness. And if that's the negative content doing it. So obviously there's even far more negative content like, you know, sites that show teenage girls how to cut themselves and things like that. But even if you put that aside, um, just generally speaking, the entire business model for the Internet um, it has the wrong incentives, has perverse incentives. If you were to remove the liability protection and those same plaintiff's lawyers who I just mentioned in MedMap practice a minute ago um, could just start suing Facebook and Twitter and, you know, all the different snap for, for billions of dollars and then no one judgments because the juries are not going to like these platforms any more than they like the tobacco companies um that will change behavior so is that where the is that where the political uh sort of impetus comes from i mean there's a plaintiff's lawyers like where is where is the driving no, force? i don't think the plaintiff's lawyers are, are drive i've never heard of the plaintiff's lawyers driving this, this is just sort right. of my idea no i know i'm but curious if that could be a force though I, here's the thing so i you know when I was in law school, I knew I wasn't going to practice law. But if I was going to... You were going to be suing the shit out of people? Sure, because that's the most <laughs> entrepreneurial piece of law, right? right? It's the only piece of law that's really like, like business, right? As opposed to just sort of bureaucracy. So um, the people who do that are very good at their jobs. A lot of the tort lawsuits... Um, are wasteful. Some of them actually do produce necessary reforms and consumer safety. Did you ever read that book, Civil Action? Nope. Oh boy, that's a great one. You enjoy that. What's it? I mean, I know. I guess I think that's a, what it's about. But <laughs> it's about a, a, a giant civil lawsuit um, uh, involving like sort of environmental degradation, in, I think in Massachusetts, like Aaron Brockovich. Sort of, yeah. Um, I guess it is. It's it's kind of the it's the it's the non Hollywood version of of Aaron Brockovich. Yeah. Um, anyway, you would enjoy. Anyway, it. but I I believe that the plaintiff's bar actually is really talented and could do a lot with this. And I also think that if this opportunity came up, you'd see more and more talented law students gravitate towards uh, that profession. And so, look, could you have a government-led task force to moderate content instead? Yeah, of course you can. They've been trying to figure that out now for the last 15 years. But yeah. even if they could figure it out, they're not going to get it right. They're going to fuck it up because they're going to be, you know, constant in fighting. There may constantly you know, some po internal politics and bureaucracy. And nothing will get done. No, and it's too big a thing yeah. to moderate. And like if you just sort of, this is the same thing with tobacco, right? The reason ultimately 
that tobacco standards in this country changed, that smoking in this country dropped, uh, is be not because the government in and of itself did stuff. They did some stuff, but it's also because um, of the legal system we have, right? And all of the litigation uh, against tobacco companies ultimately led to the way that they market the product, advertise the product, led to new laws around marketing and advertising the product. So I think that if you had the similar thing with, with the internet, um, it would make a big difference. And if the internet were less toxic, and less highlighting inequality constantly and sort of what you don't have, then that takes away a potent uh, resource for extremists. All right, next. Energy independence, right? So we're seeing this right now, like for example, in the Baltic, you know, Putin blew up uh, some of the uh, energy pipelines. Wait, do we know that Putin blew it up? Or let's just, everyone seems to believe Putin blew it up, okay. everyone but Putin. Um, <laughs> And that's going to starve Europe of, of natural gas, which is going to be a real problem in the winter because people need to heat their homes. Um, I think that for as long as we are in, relying on other countries, and this is not just the U.S., this is any country, relying on other countries for your energy, um, you, you're always going to be at risk, and then that risk is what gets exploited by demagogues, right? So to me, what it means is, um, yes, renewable energy obviously is, is a good idea, nuclear, solar, I mean, sorry, solar, wind, uh, hydro, but I think it's really nuclear is the answer, right? And, and again, this is a much bigger policy shift like UBI or reparations than kind of what we see right now with like electric cars. But fundamentally, if you believe that nuclear technology can be used safely to produce electricity, and I think it's shown that it can, um, you could do this anywhere in the world. It doesn't matter what's underground in order to do that. Um, and if and it powers a vast amount of things with a relatively small amount uh, of input. So um, if every country effectively was not relying on any other country um, for their energy, um, it would really reduce a lot of the volatility and risk. And also, the people who right now make a lot of money from energy tend to be the ones feeling extremism. So a lot of the Middle East, Russia, um, and so Venezuela. So, you know, it would take power away from current extremists, and it would also um, just give people a, a lot more independence where they, they're not constantly at risk of losing heat, losing power, whatever else, and then that makes their quality of life better, which makes them less susceptible to extremism. That's a pretty serious long-term um objective, would you say? Oh, yeah, except, you know, it's funny, the, unlike, let's say, UBI and reparations, which are these big policy ideas that I, I don't know if they'll ever happen, right? Um, I think nuclear will happen, right? It, it, just because ultimately technology always wins over the long haul. And if it proves to be the most efficient, cost-effective way to do something that generates the most benefit, the market will embrace it and it will happen. It may be over 50, 60 years, but I do think it'll happen. Um, whereas, you know, I don't think it even requires some great political leader to, to make it happen. I think it just will happen, though. Obviously, it'd happen a lot faster if, if somebody was willing to really champion it. Um, but whereas like something like UBI or reparations won't necessarily happen absent some, you know, cr created movement of some kind. Nuclear energy is a pretty fascinating case of where the public perception just moved so hard in one direction against with a without a, without much basis in, in yeah i mean you had a couple of look it's you had three mile island you had chernobyl you had a couple of accidents around the world and it got so much attention that as a result it basically killed the entire development of the industry and something that had the ability to really um reduce carbon emissions to really reduce energy imports of, of petroleum, of oil, um, instead got put on the shelf um, because politicians saw an opportunity 
to exploit people's fear and use it for political gain. So Andrew Cuomo, former governor, disgraced former governor of New York, um, one of his big things was you know, to shut down the Indian Point power plant, which is a nuclear power plant in Westchester, New York. Um, and ultimately, why? Because people in Westchester were afraid because they were like, oh, what if this thing has a leak? And Cuomo was a political genius, and he saw that, and he exploited it, and he's very demagogic. And he managed to actually really reduce, as a result, New York's energy independence and, and output um, for the wrong reasons. So, yeah, it, it is. Um, when we're done with your list, by the way, I want yeah. to go back and talk about Andrew Cuomo for one second. But let's not let's not uh, okay. let's not interrupt the flow. All right. So the the next one again is, is something the listeners are tired of hearing me about talk about. But mobile voting, which truly really means structural democratic reform, right? The reason why right now extremists are able to win power, whether it's um, in Italy or Brazil or the U.S. or Brexit or whatever else, is because very few people vote. Um, and when very few people vote, the people who do tend to be extremists on the far left or the far right. Here in the U.S., as an example, because virtually every legislative district in this country is gerrymandered, the only election that really matters is the primary. Primary town in this country is typically 10 to 20 percent, which means as a result— um, only kind of the most extreme ideological voters from each side of the aisle spectrum are the ones that vote in primaries. So the message to them politicians is you have to make this narrow group of people happy. This narrow group of people want conflict. They want partisanship. They don't want compromise. They don't want solutions. And so all it does is breed and further the same system of, of sort of just incompetence and dysfunction that we have right now. If you were to have significantly higher primary turnout, things would move to the middle. Politicians will do whatever they have to do to keep their jobs. If they have to be left-wing, they'll be left-wing. If they have to be right-wing, they'll be right-wing. If they have to be centrist, they'll be centrist. They'll just adapt because the only thing they care about is staying in office. If 50% of people voted in a primary instead of 12% of people, definitionally, um, the incentives move towards the mainstream because now you have half the people participating. Um, we know that it's never going to happen no matter how many times Beyonce does a Rock the Vote concert or all these reforms that are, are good but incremental like, you know, jungle primaries and, and uh, what's called, you know, open primaries and um, what's the thing we just did in New York? Uh, and I like these guys Ranked a lot. choice? Ranked choice, yeah. Um, they're all good ideas, but they're very incremental. And the only thing that at scale could rapidly increase primary turnout is technology. It's mobile voting. Um, we have seen this with every industry, right? So I, I kind of started thinking about this when we ran all the campaigns to legalize Uber a decade ago, where the same people who advocated for us politically and allowed us to beat the taxi industry in every single market in the U.S. And at the time, we were a tiny startup, and they were a powerful industry. It's because we were able to harness technology to change the political inputs. Um, so I believe we can do that with mobile voting. Um, as listeners may know, or probably know, uh, we've touched philanthropies has funded mobile voting elections in seven different states, 21 different jurisdictions. We are now building our own mobile voting technology. We're about two-thirds of the way done with the build. It will be free and open source to anyone who wants to use it. Um, and my hope is that if we can make it possible for people to vote on their phones, vastly more people will choose to do so because of the simplicity of it, just like they choose to you know, use healthcare and their love life and banking and transportation and everything else. Amazon, right, everything else. And I think then that pushes all of the inputs and incentives towards the middle, and then all of a sudden politicians are incentivized to actually get things done because that's what the majority of their voters want. And if things are getting done, then extremists have far less of an argument to make. Well said. Okay, three more, but I'll go quick, I guess. Okay. This next one is the 
weirdest one on the list. Okay. Uh, is this one we haven't talked about before? We have not talked about you know, it before. Bradley didn't share his list with me, which is kind of like the protocol. But So I'm, I'm looking at his phone. It's upside down. I can't really read it. I didn't share with you. Anna, I spent like eight hours with you on Saturday. I know. We didn't talk and about it at all. We didn't talk about it we at all. We went to the AAS concert. Yeah, we went to dinner. And we have to talk about that too. Dinner wasn't that great. Um, but the concert was super fun. So but we didn't talk about it. So Cuomo, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. After this. Go I ahead. Made the Mets. Um, oh, the Mets, right. What if you had like a global island for refugees? Like he, so, so one of they the, have one in Australia, Christmas Island. It's a terrible place. Okay, but let's let's say that you, you did it. We said okay, because partly look at look at the fueling of extremism in, in Europe, for example. Right, you have this terrible, terrible civil war in Syria. Right, people are fleeing. They're coming up through the Mediterranean, through Greece and Turkey and places like that, filtering into places like Germany and ultimately Scandinavia, um, and that is requiring a tremendous amount of social services. Um, and it makes some people angry because they feel like their tax money is going to people who are not of their country and are not their problem. Mm-hmm. And extremist you know, politicians are very good at seizing upon that and using that to win power. So maybe if we know that refugees inherently fuel or give credence and power to extremist politicians, what if you had some global island or country where you just said, okay, in any massive civil war or anything else, we are going to allow people to come here, we'll transport them, just kind of like you did with refugee camps after World War II, um, and we will give them uh, a basic life, right? They're not meant to be here permanently, but we will feed them and clothe them and educate their kids, and they will be here uh, until either they can get citizenship in another country or their country returns to some level of normalcy. Um, And yes, it would be incredibly hard and incredibly expensive, but it would help a lot of people, right? Because you have sort of civil wars all over the country, all over the world. I think you're going to have even more in, in the near future. Um, and it would then, all, rather than forcing, you know, countries to just absorb the burden, um, then all of a sudden, you know, you're you're treating it in a far more humane way without the political consequences. If if not for immigration debate, Donald Trump doesn't win in 2016, right? Build the walls was his strongest argument. Um, so well, I'll, I'll know, say this, Bradley. Yeah. I, I understand the good intentions behind that idea, and you've explained them nicely, but that idea scares the shit out of me. Why? Because that sounds like some prison camp. How do you think things are right now? For no, I realize they're bad, but but I but I think the the idea of people being sent somewhere where they can't leave, um, it. it it's hard to imagine that ending up as a humane Okay, what if it place? were optional? So you could choose to right. to flee, but you could choose to get this... Right, it could he, be one place you could go. Here's what I know. When, when my father, when my grandparents were in the refugee camps after World War II in Germany, um, they were willing to go to any country in the world that would take them. And it took years and years to get anyone. And finally... Uh, a cousin in Brooklyn gave, sponsored them, and they came to the U.S. But they would have gone. Were to, they in a relocation camp? Yeah, they would have gone to Israel. They would have gone to South America. They would have gone pretty much anywhere. Um, and luckily, it happened to be the United States. So I, I think, at the very least, if you said to people, "Look, here is an option." Um, now, look, you have to make it good because I'm sort of thinking about the corollary of homeless people in homeless shelters like here in New York or other cities where they choose not to go there, even though sleeping on the street is terrible because the shelters are considered so dangerous and and awful. So you'd have to make them a lot better than that. But maybe if if you made them better and you gave people the option and you didn't have this massive influx of refugees coming into democratic societies that overwhelm the system, then you give extremists, you know, a lot less room to run. Well, it is crazy. I I saw a number being thrown around about how much the sort of uh, migrant camp that they're building in the Bronx uh, is going to cost. 
And it, I mean, it's in the tens of thousands of dollars per person. Yeah. Well, it's like, and, like and, prison, right? It's vastly right. more expensive. And to you're like, well, is there some someone? way that they can? I mean, especially with, especially with like things like going on in Florida, where there's such a demand for 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 labor, like it, it just seems to be a better solution than like putting them in a parking lot in the Bronx. Um, well, that's a, so at least in the U.S., you have all these millions of people streaming through. Let them in. We need more workers, we need more people in this country, and we need, ultimately, we have an aging society, people are living longer than ever, they retire at 65, 70, they live till 85, 90, they're relying on Social Security and Medicare, and there's not enough money on the young side coming in through taxes and, and payments to fund the output, right? And so if you had uh, five million more people in this country who were working and legal and paying taxes, a, the demand for that is, is clearly there. I mean, all the labor market is super tight all over this country. And B, that would produce revenue that would then take care of all the baby boomers and then ultimately, you know, 20, 30 years us in Gen X. So, like, um, I think we ought to have massively increased immigration in this country. But that's not so much a refugee question. It's an, it's an economics question. Okay. We have two more. Yep. Um, so this one's a little tricky because... I literally love having this podcast where I say whatever the fuck I want, right? right? But, but maybe the First Amendment is too broad. Uh-oh. Um, maybe in the same way that Section 230 needs to be revoked to change the political, I'm sorry, the, the economic incentives for Facebook or Twitter or whoever it is, maybe right now the business model for the media, and if we look at the companies that are making money, whether it's Fox News on the right or the New York Times on the left, the way that they figure out how to make money is to be extremist, is to say... We are going to tell our listeners, readers, whatever it is, exactly what they want to hear to feel better about themselves and, and ultimately vilify some other group of people uh, in order to do that, right? And so that fuels tremendous extremism on both sides of the aisle in this country, and same thing's true around the world. Um, and that leads to people susceptible to Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders or whoever it is. Um, so in the same way that we're, I would at least like to be able to take away the economic incentives for uh, the internet platforms to have toxic content, maybe free speech shouldn't be so free. Like maybe the answer, maybe there need to be standards. And if a New York Times or a Fox News doesn't meet them because it's too extremist, they lose some amount of their access to, to, to journalism or whatever it is, or they have to pay massive fines or taxes or I don't know. But it seems to me that I gave you a solution to addressing on the internet that I think you accepted is pretty valid. Right, revoking Section 230, maybe in part because I talk about it every fucking week. Um, <laughs> whereas Fox News or MSNBC, they contribute to the problem just as much, and you've got to find some way to deal with it too. And so everything is about inputs and outputs, right? If right now all the incentives that these outlets have is to be extremists because the output is more advertising revenue, more money, if all of a sudden they had to pay a cost for that, and maybe it's just increasing legal liability for them as well, right? So the plaintiffs, maybe it's the plaintiff's bar as a solution again. But I do think that y you can't ignore this. I mean, I think you'd have a similar problem there that you'd have with the with the islands for, 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 uh, for refugees, which is, yes, it, theoretically, you could create this super just system that everybody acted to the best of your intentions and, and, and the way we'd want them to. But just imagine the kinds of rules that would get uh, get passed, and imagine the people enforcing those rules, and think what a what incredible potential there so would be for abuse. I get it, and that's a fair argument. But I would also say 
That's exactly the thinking that the 90% who don't want change always fall victim to. Either they use it as an excuse or they actually believe it. And rather than figuring out, okay, the status quo isn't working, we got to change it how? And look, I'm just coming up with a random yeah, yeah, list no, of stuff. So it's like... You're, you're meant to stir the pot with this. Right, it's, but it's like... The easiest thing to do always, like in government, it's always easy to kill something. It's very hard to create something. Right. And so if you're like, oh, here are all the reasons why it can't work, you can shut anything down. But as a result, the status quo just continues and perpetuates, and this terrible fucking society we're living in perpetuates. And so, yeah, maybe the shutting down or limiting the First Amendment rights of Fox News or the New York Times is not the way to go. But I think you got to recognize that media extremism is contributing to the problem. Right. Gotcha. Okay. And, and last the one. last one's crime. Crime. Um, I just think that when people feel unsafe, um, they're angry and they're upset and they're very susceptible to uh, extremist demagogue po- politicians. And I think that um, we're seeing a movement in this country um, really about defunding the police and reducing the ability of the police to do their job. Um, I do think that there are police reforms that are needed. Um, I support legalization of drugs, which would massively reduce the incarceration rate in this country. Um, I re- support sort of changing the sentencing laws, um, lots of different things. But at the same time, fundamentally, I mentioned the top of the podcast, in, the, in a seven-day period, Hugo and I saw a fight, just a fight, but then also a homicide investigation, right? Um, right, right just here, by sitting in one place. Sitting in one place, looking out the window in New York City, one of the richest places in the world. There's an Equinox on this box, right? What does it cost to get an annual membership at Equinox? Thousands of dollars, right? Yeah, I think it's like $300 a month. Yeah. So like on the same fucking block as an Equinox that costs you $3,600 a year to join are shootings and fights. We're living in a place that is starting to feel out of control. That makes you susceptible to extremism. Okay. Um, Bradley, you said this was going to be maybe a shorter episode, but that's not the case. Yeah, but, I always talk too much. Um, okay, so I want to. I'm, I'm just going to say one question. On first of all, we would love to hear from people on all these things. Um, the Bradley's obviously throwing some ideas out there that that he does want sort of feedback and 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 response. Yeah, to. definitely. Um, so please, you know. Put review and rate all yeah, that. And so send, I, I, send yeah, emails. all of it. I, I, if you reach out to firewall.media, I love getting people's thoughts and ideas. And we, he does, in fact, love them. Yeah, and unless someone's being really nasty. No, or, but people or, are never nasty. Uh, once in a while, I don't. <laughs> the only reason I don't respond is if someone is being really right. nasty. We but get pretty nice emails. That, we don't. It's, right. it's it's actually and every single email that I think I haven't seen a nasty one in a long time. Um, but the uh, they're pretty great always. I mean, and they're unusual. Like the people respond to different things, and yeah. it's pretty cool. And look, people have been rating and reviewing. Um, I see it like on Spotify. It's done a lot, but like you know, it's a few weeks up. ago we had zero reviews. Now we have ten, and they're five stars. So thank you very much. So if you're listening to this on Spotify, please uh, rate and review it, or at least rate us. I'm starting to listen to all my podcasts on Spotify. Yeah, I, I pretty much use Spotify. Really? It's like a, a transition. I was on Apple forever. Now I have Wondery because they have some content that I like and it doesn't have ads. Oh. So, but, you know, the reality is I don't use it that much because I'm so wedded to just using it's, Spotify yeah, that I don't one, even think to go well, to Well, it's Wondery. like Ben Thompson's point. Spotify doesn't sell music. They sell convenience. And it's really true. And, and yeah. with the, the podcasting, it's the same way. Totally. So... Um, I want to. I'm just one question, Andrew. Cole. Yeah. I, I I I went to the Pavement concert last night with a friend in. Um, so you did it in, two nights in a row. Are you going to? I know Charlie's going. Are you going to go for a third? You know, Charlie invited me, but I'm not going. The trifecta. I was gonna. I was like, I don't think I. The standing around last night did definitely warm me. Yeah, down. he invited me, and I was like. I went to a concert the night before. He's like, well, I go to about eight a month. So I'm yeah. like, all right, cool. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I go to about eight a year. Yeah. Um, so uh, my friend, a, a person who works in the media, I won't say any more about him um, since he's not here to defend himself. He said his prediction is the next mayor of New York City is 
Andrew Cuomo. Would you give me your just off not the cuff? Totally crazy. Not crazy. Not crazy. Look, he's an excellent politician, number one. Number two, we live in a world with very short attention spans. And we live in a country that loves a comeback story, even when the person coming back is a bad person. Um, and if Eric, look, I still think Eric Adams has the potential to be a good mayor, but let's say he's not able to get crime under control. He's not able to get quality of life under control. He's going to be very vulnerable to a primary challenge in 2025. And if someone is saying it's all screwed up, by the way, it's sort of an extremist platform in a way, right? Everything is screwed up and I'm going to fix it for you. Um, that's how someone like Andrew Cuomo regains power. And he is incredibly politically smart. He has money to use uh, to take out ads and everything else already just to lay the groundwork for it. Um, you saw last week he announced a political action committee. He did a comeback video. I think he's hosting a podcast. And so... Yeah, I don't think that's the craziest idea. Give me, um, give me odds or, or percentage chance. Mayor or just political comeback? Mayor. 25% mayor. 25%? At some point. But I would say 90% attempted a political comeback. And 60%, I'm going to put it at 100% a political okay, comeback. And 60% that he captures some sort of office before he dies. 60%. I think so. If he can't get mayor, though, what, I mean, what, attorney general again? Well, I mean, did, did he get disbarred? Didn't we talk about this? He I don't didn't. think he got disbarred. Giuliani did. I don't think Cuomo did. Oh, Giuliani well, did get disbarred? Yeah. I, I see Andrew Kurtzman, by the way, is doing a. Uh, yeah, a with, thing with, here. Your, with your buddy Nagurney. Yeah, um, he's your buddy. I don't really, I haven't talked to, the only time I ever talked to Adam was when I worked for Chuck, and that was 20 years ago. I haven't ago. talked to Adam in years. I haven't talked to him in two decades. And uh, I know Howard was friends with him, and then he complained, because Nagurney, he would call Nagurney when he, Howard went to L.A., uh -huh. but then Nagurney wasn't calling Howard when Nagurney was in New York. And I was like, <laughs> fuck that guy. I hope I didn't reveal, just make Howard upset and reveal confidence. But anyway, but Adam Nagurney's a really, really, really smart dude. Uh, Andrew Kirchman is a friend of mine, but a former uh, political reporter from New York One, kind of the preeminent journalist that covered Rudy Giuliani, just wrote a book about Giuliani. I've been reading it. It's really good. You're reading it? Yeah. Oh, I don't think I could spend yeah. that and, much time um, reading Giuliani. But. And uh, yeah, I may not get through all of it, but, but Andrew's a really good writer. So uh, yeah, they're, they're having an event at the bookstore October 15th, so please come on by if you can. Um, you want to say anything about the Mets here? You're just oh, the, the, the incredible sadness I mean, of the it's weekend. just sort of like, so if you remember in the preseason, I was very bearish. Oh, my team, God. Right? I was like, we're not going to win. We made some changes, but You not sounded enough. a little like Charlie Brown. It felt like yeah. Charlie Brown. Well, I feel like it fucking right now, too. Literally, <laughs> last night, my friend Ed and I were texting, and we were literally using the phrase, Lucy and the football. Yeah. Um, so the Mets, you know, look, Steve Cohen does seem like a great, great owner, and he's putting tremendous resources into both making the team smarter and more talented. They're going to so, run out of jerseys to retire, though, the numbers, I think. Oh, we're already out of it, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but at the same time, it's still the fucking Mets, right? So right. we are we have a great season. We've won 98 games so far. We had a 10.5-game lead on the division uh, like back in May or June. And now Atlanta has managed to overtake us. We played them over the weekend. We came in uh, tied or maybe one game up. I think we came in one game up, and then we ended up now two games back. We got swept by them. Our great pitchers, DeGrom and Scherzer, and then even Bassett the next night, all pitched badly. Our offense was was dormant, um, and it's just the fucking Mets always find a way to disappoint you. They now, always now find a way to, to blow it. I hate to take you out of your very your very serious tour, but draw back for a second and think about what an insane baseball season this has been in New York. So you had the Yankees, super dominant team, completely fall apart. I think they were the worst team in baseball other than the Marlins for two months. 
you know, and then suddenly they're back, they're back. Looking, looking fine. The the Mets, who had this incredible year, just now crumbling at the finish line. Yeah, look, if, if they don't change things, they will lose in the wild card, and that will be well, it. Well, I still think, despite the fact that those three pitchers were not good over the weekend, they I, I would take them over any other but Well, three except, and I, it's not a sports podcast, but two things. One, <laughs> one is DeGrom, maybe he's still hurt, right? He has not yeah. pitched well now in the last four or five starts. You know, he came back from injury. He'd been out for over a year and change. And look, when he is on his game, is he the best tip pitcher in baseball? Absolutely. Um, he's always hurt. So in reality, he's on his game very rarely, and he's a free agent this year. And if I were Steve Cohen, I don't know that i give him a long-term record-setting contract because I think it's very hard to rely on this well, guy. Well, we'll see, right? Nice guy, yeah. great pitcher, but maybe not the best use of resources. If you can get him for a high-value short-term deal, I think that would probably be more wiser. But, but here's the other point I wanted to make, which is there's a question about sports, which is what, what really matters? Is it your team winning a championship at the end of the day, and that's what creates happiness among fans? Or is your team playing well over the long period of a season because you're enjoying each game incrementally as it goes? So if your team makes the playoffs, your your happiness derived from it is significantly better than if your team didn't make the playoffs. And the playoffs are only a month. The rest of the season is six months. And so ultimately, you got six months of joy because you had a competitive team. So even if they lose in the playoffs, you're a winner. Um, that's a way to look at it, too. I think I've even written that before. Um, I, I don't, you know, it's hard in the heat of the moment to accept that because you you get so emotionally invested in this. But, that you know, I, you're right. I mean, I have enjoyed baseball all season long. I've gone to lots of games. I've watched tons of games. Um, and uh, even if the Mets do lose in the, in the wild card, um, it was still a better season than usual. I want to say one last thing. So we, uh, Bradley and I went to, with some other friends to the AAS concert. Uh, which was at the uh, the Forest Hills uh, Tennis Stadium, which is an unbelievable venue to yeah. see almost anything. And then just last night, I went to uh, see Pavement at uh, King's Theater in, in Brooklyn. Did you like it? I mean, the show is incredible, but the point I wanted to make was that both those places uh, are, are illustrations of why, despite all the terrible things that are happening in New York City right now, um, like in some ways, it's never been better for, to be a concert goer in New York City. Those are those are totally. those are places off the beaten path in terms of yeah, they're not know, MSG. Or yeah, they're not they're not in the middle of Manhattan. They're right. not they're not on the Lower East Side or, or all the places traditional places where you're supposed to go right. see music, and they are just excellent facilities. I would go there to either place for yeah. Almost any so event. I was at last time I was at King's Theater. It was with our friend Charlie and um, who'd you see? Karen O. Okay. So Karen O. Who's the lead singer there? He has made an album with Danger Mouse, and they performed the album sort of start to finish. And it was an incredible venue. When I got there, because my dad grew up in Crown Heights, I called him. I said, "Like, did you ever come here?" He's like, right. "It was a movie theater. I went there all the time. Like, and it's the most ornate, beautiful oh my place God. ever." We were kind of wondering, was it built as a movie theater? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's according to Gabe. Yeah, like well, he, they probably it was like probably the silent movies where they had. And he went like, there all, all the time as a kid. And by the way, it's better suited as a concert venue because it's almost too great oh, yeah. to be a movie theater. Grandiose, you yeah. know. Um, but yeah, but there are. Look, that's the thing about New York: it, it, the creative destruction, in a way, always occurs in this city. Sometimes even heightens at times of economic insecurity and, and lower quality of life. So, you know, there is some, New York City will always sort of have some really cool shit going on, no matter how bad it seems. Yeah. Till next week, Bradley. All right. See ya. Bye bye.